Welcome to Coffee House. Some men simply do more. Most of the sloppy primates wander around for a bit and accomplish very little, but some drive civilization forward. Nikola Tesla was an engineer and inventor in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He was instrumental in the manipulation of electricity and the development of motors. So, as always, we will go through the contents of the book, My Inventions, The Autobiography of Nikola Tesla by Nikola Tesla, then we will do an analysis where we talk about the pros and cons, the values and lack thereof of the book. And then we will go through some big picture discussion where we try to frame it within our larger understanding of the world. So here we go, the contents. Now he starts off talking about inventors, without which he believes that civilization would have faltered in the midst of unforgiving nature. In youth, you're supposed to be open and experimental, and then you mature in reason as you grow older. Now, he goes through many of the significant events in his youth. And I found this maybe some of the most interesting parts, his anecdotes about his life specifically. It's an autobiography, so that makes sense, but these were some of the most interesting parts of the whole book. Now, as a youth, he had an Arabian horse, and he loved the Arabian horse. He described it as having almost human intelligence. He said it was beautiful and strong. But one day, when his brother was riding this horse, the horse became agitated and bucked his brother off. And his brother, from the fall, ended up dying. He succumbed to the injuries. So, sometime later, they still had this horse. And his father was riding the horse back, you know, late at night in over a long distance, and the horse and his father came into this area where they were attacked by this, this pack of wolves. So the horse again became agitated and bucked his father off and fled the scene. The horse fled and returned all the way back to their, their home, which was some two hours away at this point. And after the alarms were sounded and people were alerted that something was going wrong here, the horse returned, actually, and it beat the search party. They had known that his father, that Tessa's father, had gone out. And so the horse beat them back to the father and found him, and he was unconscious on the ground in the snow. So it was the same horse that was responsible for his brother's death and his, his father's salvation in some similar circumstances. Now, when Tesla actually told the story, the way that he told it was that he just said that his brother had died prematurely and it was something that affected him. And then he went on to tell the story about his father and then connected it to say that it was the same horse. So it was, a, it was an interesting way of framing that and you wonder what psychological reason he had for it. He described his father as very witty, and <laughs> he felt the need to provide evidence of this fact and went through a couple of anecdotes of, that were marshaled to show that his father was witty. But he says that he must trace his inventiveness to his mother. He absolutely adored his mother. His mother apparently descended from a line of inventors. He described her as a truly great woman of great skill and fortitude. And her father, Tesla's mother's father, his grandfather, on one occasion was actually, he was called to give a sacrament to a family that was dying of a disease, a communicable disease. So he went to do this, and while he was gone, then his, his mother learned of another family that was dying of a disease. And she went herself, by herself, to go assist with this family. And while she was there, all five of the family members died, and she survived. And so she bathed and prepared all the bodies for burial. 
But Tesla insists that she would have been a great inventor had she been given the opportunity. She would work from the break of day until the end of night. She sewed all these creative patterns and things like that. But he said that her diligence and creativity would have made her a great inventor. Now, Tesla grew up, and this is probably something that's very important to how he thought and how he was able to do what he does, but he had this affliction of his vision. He would get these persistent, vivid pictures of scenes, often that induce great emotion, and the scenes would arise just in his vision and overwhelm him, and he wouldn't be able to get them to go away. They would just be there. And over the course of his childhood and young adulthood, he had to figure out ways to kind of battle this thing, to figure out how to get around it. So at one point, he realized that if he conjured up other visions, you know, um, other vivid visions to combat these, then he would be able to get those uh, those persistent ones that he didn't have control over to go away. But so something he would do at night is he would just, he would lay there and imagine cities and other countries and people in those countries and things, and, and he'd be conjuring all these images in his imagination so that he could fight this affliction that he had. But this would likely play an instrumental role in his ability to visualize the kinds of inventions that he wanted to make. He would visualize the entire mechanism, you know, from start to finish and see how it worked, and then he would create that in real life. It was also in his youth that he realized that he was an automaton, He put as, as he puts it. This is another idea that would come into play later, but he said he was only 12 when he banished the first image successfully uh, using these methods that he attempted to try to do it. And one of the images that he had on a recurring basis was that all the air around him was bathed in tongues of burning flames. He had these extreme aversions to particular textures. So like if he would touch hair, other people's hair or peaches, then he had a, an extreme reaction to it. And he would do things, this something, a kind of obsessive compulsive issue where he would always do things, all acts that he did would have to be divisible by three. Now, to some degree, I understand this. There's, <laughs> when I do a lot of things, I will look at the clock to determine whether the sum of the numbers on the clock are divisible by three. And sometimes I'll let that determine whether I do something or not. But uh, just, I, I understand that affinity for a particular number and having that just be something that's in, in the back of your head and not being able to shake it. He had this constant dread of the spirit of evil, as he called it, until he was about eight. So he was constantly aware of and afraid of the kinds of evil things that might be lurking out there in the world. But he described it as, and this is often how he described things that afflicted him as he was young, is that they would, there'd be something that was persecuting him in some way and, and seriously bothering him. And then he would try to figure it out and find some way to overcome it. So in this particular case, he had this dread of the spirit of evil, and his father had a large library, but his father wouldn't let him read it. <laughs> he kept him out of it, and he would discipline him if he caught him reading the books in there. So one thing that Tesla ultimately did was he created this makeshift light, an early inventing endeavor, this makeshift light that he could read by, and then he would stay up overnight until dawn, in some cases, reading these books. And this was something that just absolutely delivered him from this terror of the spirit of evil. It was something that gave him some kind of a, a control over what was out there. And something that became very important to him was this mastery of self. So there's this recurring thing. Like he talked about, he had these wishes that initially they would have to be subdued. So he'd wish to do this or that. He'd wish to be lazy. He'd wish to not work on this thing or that thing or not get up early or not do something along those lines. And he would have to subdue those in the beginning. But then he gained complete mastery over himself. 
And so the the disciplined path became the thing that he wanted over time. So there were times that he used to gamble and smoke and he used to drink coffee and the coffee would give him headaches. But he would figure out ways to get himself to not want to do any of those things. It's not just that he was resisting the things that he had an urge to do. He would figure out ways to get himself to not want those. And this is a huge thing about Tesla that I noticed that blew me away. And it comes up in the next section too. So this is about his first efforts uh, at invention. It's when he's really getting started. But he has this very strong interest in psychology in general. And this, remember, this is early on. This is late 19th century, early 20th century. And he has this deep interest in psychology, which didn't even have really a discipline at the time. But he was thinking deeply about these things, about why he did what he did, why he wanted to do what he did, and why other people acted the way that they did. He describes it here that most people are so concerned about the outside, they're just completely oblivious to what's going on on the inside. So he just marshaled all of his efforts to try to keep himself as healthy and young as possible. And he uses this one anecdote here. So uh, one thing that he talks about, he didn't, abstinence wasn't always to his liking, he says. This is a, one of the, the only references to sex or anything like that in relationships that he has in the book that I can recall, is that he wasn't always too keen on abstinence, but apparently it was something that he stuck with. But there's this anecdote. Apparently he was walking down the street and he noted that a man had been walking behind him within view. And so as he was walking, it was kind of wet on the street. He slipped at this one point and he spun himself around and caught himself on his arms. Because he fell backwards, but he spun himself around and caught himself. And then the man apparently came up and asked him, how did you do that? Or how old are you first? And, and Tesla at the time, he said he was 59. And then the man said that he had seen a cat do that, but he'd never seen a man do that. Now, who knows if this is apocryphal. This Honestly, this guy Tesla does not seem to me like somebody who would just make something up. But apparently this is to demonstrate that he had maintained his, his health and youthfulness throughout his age, even unto 59 when he's catching himself like a cat. But this is in juxtaposition to what he experienced when in his youth and even as a, a student and going forward. But apparently three times in his youth, he was rendered a physical wreck. He almost drowned a dozen times. He goes through this litany of times where he was in grave physical danger. But he almost drowned. He even described one in particular where he was swimming. And he was just trying to play a, a prank on his friends. But he, he was swimming under this thing and wanted to pop up on the other side because they were jumping off this deal. And if he didn't pop up at all, he thought it would be... You know, they would all be concerned, but then he would be on the other side. So he was swimming under this thing, but uh, there wasn't a way back up where he was trying to go back up. So he tried to go back up, but it was blocked. And then he kept going a little bit more and kept going a little bit more. So he, he almost drowned in that situation. But a dozen times he says he almost drowned. He was nearly boiled alive. He just missed being cremated. And a lot of these, he doesn't go into detail about these. He just he says them, you know, as a general category. But there are a number of ways that he was almost killed. And he says that it's... It's not actually uh, providence or some coincidence here. And this is another telling thing about him as a person, is that he believes that inventors were more observant and resourceful. So that's one of the big reasons that he was able to escape all these near-death situations. But early efforts at invention, he tried to study these May bugs. I think they're called June bugs in the United States, but they called them May bugs where he was at the time. And he would study them, and he was really interested in them. And then some <laughs> some troglodyte kid came over and apparently started eating the bugs in front of him. And then he completely lost interest in the bugs after that. <laughs> but he worked on clocks at some point, I believe, for his grandfather. He built this contraption that was made for capturing crows. So it was this simple contraption that would just capture these crows, and then he 
could do whatever he wanted with the crows, you know, to study them or um, just observe them, or whatever. But at one point, they like they got out, and a whole flock of crows apparently attacked him and his friends after he had spent all this time capturing them, and they had to hide in this cave from this flock of crows that were trying to get their revenge. I just love these anecdotes about his life. They just, they crack me up. They're so interesting. Uh, there's this these beautiful images of the kinds of things that he did. And one of the things that I'll talk about when I wrap it up, or maybe I won't need to if I say it here, but it was something about his enthusiasm for trying to learn things is absolutely infectious. It's so interesting. And you just wish that everybody was this interested in the world and didn't just sit around and talk about the most recent, whatever, Netflix release. Not to uh, completely in category despairs Netflix releases. I am actually looking forward to watching this. Was it this Calamari show? Whatever it is. I'm sure it's good. <laughs> so I, a lot of people are telling me it's good and I'm looking forward to it. So not to completely disparage it. But then he goes into my later endeavors. So we're moving on uh, temporally here. He became obsessed with this incessant motion, this idea of infinite energy from something. So he was trying to work on that and had some early failures. Uh, he at one point read all the early works of Mark Twain and it was somebody who he ended up meeting 20 years later and one thing that he pointed out was that when he met him, he expected him to be this jovial jokester of a man, but apparently when Tesla told him what Mark Twain meant to him, Mark Twain uh, broke down in tears. So again, I don't know if it's apocrypha or if it's real, but he had this great affinity for Mark Twain and got to meet him 20 years later. There's another event where he lived for three years. I believe this is when he was studying, when he had gone to school. He lived in this one house for three years that had absolutely fantastic food. The food was delicious, but it was was extremely small portions to the point of near starvation so apparently whenever they would have ham it was sliced so very thin that it was barely any food at all but what a fantastic it has all these thematic elements to it that you have all the most wonderful food in the world but it's such extremely small portions that you're not able to enjoy it but he cited this as something that was very significant to him in his development and he was traveling there were more diseases that were going around at the time one of which consigned him to the bed for nine months but these these situations the times that he would be bedridden the times when he would be diseased or physically severely injured or anything like that these all motivated him tremendously. That was something about Nietzsche, too, when I was I was reading his book. And I know I haven't been sharing as much Nietzsche. I think it's more personal. <laughs> so I've been less inclined to uh, do episodes on Nietzsche's books because I'm just going through and reading them over and over again. But I was reading the his autobiography, and he talked about how he was uh, extremely sick at a certain point. And this was the time that kind of motivated him to get beyond the things that he had been thinking before and to get into that next level of understanding about humanity and reality and existence but same thing for tesla here so he he starts getting all these ideas and one of them was a ring around the equator for travel now i think i understood this what he was saying is that you build this giant ring around the equator of the earth and that you can get on the ring and the earth is rotating so it'll rotate and then you can get off at whatever point is where you need to go i thought that just sounded fantastic (laughs) that's such an awesome idea i mean uh, impossible i'm sure but it sounded awesome and then he he thought about deriving the power from the rotation of the earth doing that somehow because you have this this consistent rotation so how do you get how do you derive power from that uh but then he goes to school he studies engineering this is at the insistence of his father i remember he said he was relieved when he his father told him that this is what you're going to be doing and when he went to school he he went there uh he was he would start his day at 3 a.m and he took no weekends or vacations he was the best in the school and when he returned home one thing that really impacted him was that 
that his father made light of his hard-won honors. He won, like, all the honors you can win at school. And it was something that really hurt him, that his father wasn't more impressed with what he had done. And then after his father died, he found all these letters from his professors to his father that were saying that this kid's gonna die if he keeps working like this. <laughs> and I'm not sure how that attached to... Because it came right after he talked about his father not uh, giving him the credit for the things that he had done. Um, but I'm not sure how it attaches to that. What it means psychologically, uh, those two things put together like that. He read all of Voltaire. Apparently Voltaire wrote a hell of a lot more than I realized, and it was it was quite the slog, but he said he read it and then never had to read it again. He kind of brings up a little bit about method here where he talks about how instinct transcends knowledge. And this was where he talked about how he was able to visualize systems all at once, and he could see them so vividly, like they were real things. You know, when you imagine something, or when I imagine something, you know, I see these fluttery images of the thing, and they're not particularly stable. But apparently for him, it was just, it was like it was real. It was like it was right there. And I believe, so at this point, he talks about, I think there's another affliction that he had that kind of messed with his senses, to the point where his hearing was just unbelievable, where he would be able to hear a fly land on a table three rooms away, or any time that he went under uh, a bridge, he would feel this crushing pressure to the point where he couldn't stay there. And eventually he got over this and then he was walking one day with a friend in a park and he was reciting Faust. He knew, at this point, he said that later in his life he didn't have this, but early on, he would know entire books by heart. So it could have been something photographic, something like that, but he would know entire books by heart, like Faust, and he would be able to recite them. So he was reciting this passage from Faust and something in this passage uh, triggered an idea so he had a flash and he drew he bent down you know it was like Jesus when he, when the people were talking about stoning the adulteress so he bent down and he took a stick and he was drawing in the sand he was drawing this diagram of something that would ultimately become the Tesla coil so this is a big huge in invention that would come later then we go into the discovery of the Tesla coil and the transformer and at this point he has ideas just coming in uninterrupted stream all very detailed in his mind. And he goes through kind of uh, his professional development. So initially he was in Paris, he was fixing power plants, and in his off time he would work on experiments. But ultimately he was convinced to go to America, to emigrate to America. And it's so amazing, the descriptions that he has of this. So he said that he was carried from a world of dreams to a world of reality. So Paris was this artistic world of dreams, and then America was this rough industrial world of reality. And he believed it was a century behind Europe and civilization, which is probably justified. But he meets with Edison, you know, around this time too, and their collaboration become a big deal. Now, I was actually talking to a friend. Now, she, <laughs> she, uh, we were at dinner. Uh, we were having Turkish food. She held up her phone. She was, uh, you know, looking up something, and then held up her phone and swiped over so the icons would get out of the way and said, do you know who this is? You're trying to stump me or something. Uh, but it was Tesla. <laughs> And so I said, it's Tesla. And uh, of course, she had hearts in her eyes for the rest of the evening. But she said, and she was, she got very animated about it, was that Edison stole Tesla's uh, inventions. And that's why Edison got the notoriety that he did was based on his pilfering of what Tesla was doing. Uh, now, obviously, in the autobiography, I didn't see much of that. I mean, he he doesn't talk much about Edison. He says that they, they had a pretty fast friendship. You know, he earned his trust, and then he went on to do all his Tesla stuff, and that was kind of that. Now, but it was fascinating. I absolutely loved that she was she was so into it. She absolutely loved Tesla and talked about him like crazy, talked about Elon Musk, and, and it, was, it was just thoroughly enjoyable.
So uh, then we go into the magnifying transmitter and how he was worried around this time. And he believes that to be his greatest invention. Uh, at this point, though, he was what he was doing was just improving other things. And he wanted to do something bigger than that. And he was walking and he noticed like lightning and the water and how they were reacting with each other. And then he develops a Tesla transformer. And I don't know anything about any of this stuff, so I can't give you any particulars. But apparently the Tesla transformer created currents like unlike any other. And he likened it to gun powder in warfare so the development of gunpowder which obviously was massive he says that that's what his invention was like it was sufficient the magnifying transmitter was his best invention it was sufficient to light more than 100 incandescent bulbs lamps uh, which of course is, is probably just hysterically nothing at this point <laughs> Then there was a Tesla wireless system where he was trying to transfer energy wirelessly, and I, I believe he had some success with this. But he could have been kind of mitigated his failures uh, toward the end here, because when I was reading some of the notes about him online, it was saying that toward the end, he squandered a lot of money and didn't accomplish much after he had his big accomplishments that made him rich when he, when he was going through this portion of his life. And he talks about the, all the applications of his technology, you know, for telephones, for governments, for news, for private use, all those sorts of things. Then he gives a little bit more about the process here where he talks about how he would intensely look into a problem and then he would leave it for a while and then come back to it and all the answers would come to him. And in some cases, nature would induce this lethal sleep, he called it, when he was about to break down. So when he was really struggling with a problem and he, he just wasn't going to be able to handle it anymore, nature would just put him to sleep and then when he woke up, he would be able to tackle it. And ultimately, and this is one of those things, when it comes to autobiography, you know, who knows, like I said, if you have a reliable narrator here, but he said that everything that he was doing was for the humanitarian value. That was what was most important. It wasn't about being the greatest inventor. It wasn't about uh, making a lot of money or something like that. It was about the humanitarian value of his inventions. And then we have some uh, mind-blowing stuff that comes toward the end here. So he says, if we were able to split the atom or create unlimited power, instead of being a blessing, it might give rise to dissent and anarchy, and ultimately result in the enthronement of the hated regime of force. So obviously we've split the atom now. <laughs> this was this is post Tesla. We have split the atom, and we do have nuclear energy, which uh, there are a lot of forces fighting against it, even though it's the the cleanest and most efficient that we have. But he was worried that if we get that kind of ability, if we get that far, it might actually just result in us having to um, depend on regimes of force as opposed to just being able to work work things out together. The greatest goodwill comes from technical improvements tending toward harmony, and that's not necessarily what we're doing. He thought that his inventions would stop war. He thought we would get over the whole war thing because of his inventions, and he realized that it, that was not the case. <laughs> he says that parliaments or leagues like the League of Nations are only new devices for putting the weak at the mercy of the strong, which is uh, of grave concern and something we might be living through at this point in our history. Peace can only come as a natural consequence of enlightenment and merging of races. So I'm not sure what he meant by races in specifics, maybe just different nations, uh, whatever kinds of demarcations that we might have between people. If we merge those things, then it will no longer uh, be a source of conflict. Peace as a natural consequence of enlightenment. Of course, uh, 
I think most people who would be reading a book about Nikola Tesla <laughs> probably believe the same thing. But the whole question is, how do you enlighten everybody? Is everybody capable of being enlightened? And will the regime of violence, uh, will that squash all the enlightened people so that it can maintain its monopoly on violence? And then, bam, here we are, humans and automatons. So he specifically talks about humans as automata in this context and how people are completely unfamiliar with what is within them as Paul Bloom said when we read his his book, I don't know if he said it in his book, but he said it in some interview or something like that. Uh, he's a psychologist at Yale, I believe. And he talked about how we are still pre-Copernican when it comes to psychology. We just do not understand enough to be able to say we understand something <laughs> when it comes to psychology. And I think Tesla was really onto something ahead of his time when it came to realizing that people just don't know why they do what they do. They don't understand it. They don't have sufficient interest in it. In this passage, he talks about this example of one may feel a sudden wave of sadness and be unaware of the obscured sun in the sky. So already he was talking about how, you know, just the sun not being out today might be a cause that's going to affect your ability to be able to feel particular things and it's going to drive you in one way versus another. Maybe you're a little bit more of a dick when you're trying to drive, drive home, <laughs> literally drive in this case. And you don't realize, you don't even think about it, you don't even consider it that that might be the reason for it. You rationalize and say, oh, it must be because of this or that or that person or because I'm not in my proper station in life or something like that. And he points out that he seeks solutions to great problems with no concern for sacrifice. So it doesn't matter how much he has to sacrifice. It's the solutions to the great problems that he is seeking. But the automatism of life is clear to Tesla. He says that that's the one obvious thing, the one clearly true thing that he can he sees for himself, at least that he believes that's what people are, are automata. And then he brings up this kind of idea of a, a, a bit of a collective unconscious here, a Jungian thing going on, where you have this cosmic pain when something is hurt, that it's something that the author or you support, and you feel pain over it. He says that this is kind of a collective situation, so bodies have similar influences, and that's why we, we feel the pain based on it. But I think I quoted him um, directly here. We are automata entirely controlled by the forces of the medium, being tossed about like corpse on the surface of the water, but mistaking the impulses from the outside as free will. So I don't think I, I could have a problem with that. I mean, this is, you know, the question of free will versus determinism. Obviously, anybody who's listened to this knows my position on that. Free will is a, a ludicrous concept in itself. Philosophically, it's a ludicrous concept. But here, this is, like I said, he's well ahead of himself in pointing it out in this way, that we are just controlled by the forces of the medium. Now, obviously, he wouldn't have had all the robust understanding of DNA and biology, and that's something that I would want to make sure, because we're built in ranges. We have ranges of responses to stimuli. That's that's what we are biologically. And so the outside world affecting us or acting upon us is still subject to those ranges of responses. It's not just that the outside world can make us do whatever we want to do. As biological creatures, we have a certain range of ability and plasticity when it comes to responding to stimuli. And so those things work in concert with each other. But uh, humans as automata, I think that's, uh, that's a fantastic idea. And then he had this idea of constructing an automaton that struck him early, but he didn't get to it for a while. So it took a while for him to actually get to it. He designed a complete machine by around 1897. In 1898, he had this basic patent for what's essentially a robot, <laughs> a humanoid robot he had in, 19, in 1898. And he believed that eventually the automata will create a revolution. That's what was coming down the pike when it came 
talking to these robots and he had ideas for a self-driving car or a car that had a bunch of like this intelligence around 1898 he had this idea <laughs> so a hundred years ahead of places like Tesla and other organizations trying to create self-driving cars <laughs> But that's the book. That's Tesla. And obviously, he doesn't go into his... It's an autobiography, so it doesn't go into his death or anything. Because he wouldn't know. <laughs> but it was a short book. And as always, if it's a short book, that means it has to be a long episode. Uh, that's how this has been going so far. But my analysis, to go into the analysis. Uh, this is an autobiography, so you always have to wonder how reliable the narrator is, as we brought up a couple of times. Tesla as a person, he seemed so interested in the world. It was perpetually bubbling over. And that is something that's so wonderful and so infectious. Like I said, I just wish everybody did that. I love that aspect of his personality. He was also deeply interested in psychology before it was even a real discipline, as we talked about. You know, he had this idea of humans as automatons and just trying to understand how they would functionally work if it was a matter of they just uh, did things on that basis as opposed to with their free will deciding what they want to do or not do. And the big thing, self-analysis, being under, understanding who you are and why you are the way that you are is so important. It's uh, a scaffold that's a means to the kinds of discipline that you would need to be able to accomplish incredible things like he did. And even beyond that, even not just, uh, you know, trying to revolutionize invention or something like that, just trying to be a better person, just trying to understand why you do bad things so you can prevent yourself from doing them again is something that everybody should be involved in. There was a little in the book itself on the significance of his discoveries from kind of a broader perspective. There wasn't a lot about how society was transformed or anything like that from his his work. He had the, the little bits at the end where he talked about what he wanted to accomplish and how it was humanitarian and all that sort of stuff. But there wasn't much about kind of the sociological or economical effects of the things that he did, which would be something that would probably show up in just a biography of his as opposed to an autobiography. But it didn't seem to place his life in kind of the broader significance of the development of, you know, say capitalism or whatever. He had a, a number of companies when he was growing up, when he was he was um, gaining notoriety. A bunch of patents, there were, what was it, Westinghouse or something like that, uh, worked with him and developed the Tesla Corporation and, and other corporations that he used to develop all these sorts of things. But anyway, the book is short and it's worth reading. You know, it's very short, not, notwithstanding the length of this episode, it was very short and it was totally worth reading. Big picture wise, it's amazing to think how young capitalism is. This is something that struck me. We're just now getting multinational corporations with more assets than many nations. <laughs> and uh, capitalism led to the most incredible advancements in history of the species in an extremely short amount of time. Given the length of our evolutionary history, it was an extremely short amount of time that just unleashing capitalism upon the world was able to do that. Now, I was listening to a podcast recently. It was a Lex Friedman podcast. And he had on Brett Weinstein. I think it was a an older one. And Weinstein or Weinstein, what is this? How do you pronounce that? I'm going to say Weinstein. Uh, so he was talking about, you know, some marked adjustment of what capitalism is because it, it, you know, it struggles so mightily in, in the world providing something or some other thing. It drives me crazy. It absolutely drives me crazy because it's one of these things where it's like, uh, well, it hasn't done everything perfectly in every context that I can think of at this point. So we must have to change it dramatically. And that's something that humans 
things do all the time is they that, oh, well, this thing could could be doing something, you know, I don't know if this is a necessary trade-off, but it could be doing things better, so therefore let's change it a whole bunch. And that kind of drives me crazy. It does feel like when it comes to our society, I just bought a new computer, you know, Apple just came out with a new MacBook Pro, and, you know, I was watching the thing about how they did this and they did that, and this is so advanced and we're, it's, uh, you know, three times the speed of the previous chip and all this other stuff. But it does feel like we're kind of hitting an innovation plateau at this point when it comes to technology. And I'm sure there are huge steps that can't even be anticipated right now. I mean, we've got, obviously, SpaceX is is creating means of personal space flight outside of the atmosphere and to the moon and all sorts of other things. Reusable rockets. I mean, all this stuff is amazing. And everybody and their brother is trying to work on artificial intelligence that can do all sorts of different things. So, I mean, I'm sure there are massive advancements. But when it comes to the things that genuinely can impact people, you know, like our longevity, our happiness, make these primates uh, a little more formidable out there in nature, it seems like there isn't a whole much more to be done. <laughs> but I'm sure everybody had said that at every step of the way, just like Carl Pilkington. When he's talking to Ricky Gervais and they talked about how we could have just stopped inventing things before the air airplane <laughs> and Carl's like well what have they come up with since then <laughs> we don't need any of that stuff when, and this is when the iPod was coming out that they were having this discussion but anyway so obviously we'll have um some a discussion episode we're going to do a discussion episode related to this one but the next book I already picked it I'm going to start doing this more consistently is The Parasitic Mind by Gad Saad is it just Gad Saad why don't I know how to pronounce any of these names uh, Gad Saad Gad Saad uh, The Parasitic Mind we're going to be reading that one next it's got a yellow cover <laughs> And we're going to knock that one out for next week. And then we'll have some other books. Uh, I've got some other stuff that's going to be coming up. Just little blurbs. I have another article that's going to be going up on Substack this week. And then I'm going to have little blurbs that are going to be coming out. I'm going to try to get to a daily situation going on here. But it's been very, very difficult uh, given my my schedule. So The Parasitic Mind, that's going to be the next one. I uh, absolutely love this book about Tesla and learning about him. And uh, hopefully I will see you on the next one. All right, bye. Bye. <music>